Didn't have to tell the kids twice. That's good. All right. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. Pain and color. We talk about different types of weather reflecting more somber or sad times. Maybe you don't, but that means you haven't hung out with my wife enough. Because if we have a dark day, my wife is like, oh, it's so dark, it's gloomy. Me, I love, I love um, rainstorms. I love the dark. I love the, the gloom of a really good thunderstorm. But my wife... When it's dark outside and it gets really dark early, like, she hates this time of year. Okay? And what the author of Lamentations is doing is he's picking up on some of those same type of ideas. Because colors represent and actually do, in a sense, point to something that's cheerful or something that's sad. So a lot of cultures, after a death, they will wear darker colors. And to celebrate a life, they might wear whiter colors. Just like at a wedding, the bride hardly ever wears a black wedding dress, right? She wears white. She's celebrating. She's happy. When we moved into our house, it was a big discussion. What color are we going to paint the house? And my preference was kind of more like a, a gentleman's um, gray, you know, a little bit of a tint of a blue with some gray. And Bethany's like, it's too dark, it's too gloomy, the house will be gloomy all the time. So we settled for a, a more, um, you know, neutral color. So you can come over tomorrow and see our neutral, neutral ground, I believe is what it's called. But color demonstrates um, emotions. And so if you've noticed, like, every one of our slide backgrounds for this whole sermon series has been gray, right? It's been kind of boring. Um, but it demonstrates the emotion. And as you read through Lamentations chapter 4, he's going to highlight color. He's going to use color to point us to the gloom, the sorrow, the sadness that he is experiencing and that the city of Jerusalem is experiencing as he works through it. So this chapter will uses colors to picture the extent of the pain, especially the first couple of verses. As we read through it, look for the colors that are talked about as we go through it. Verse 1, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. Even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young. But the daughters of my people is cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongues of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the street. Those who are brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which is over, was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. Her Nazarites were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. Now their appearance is blacker than soot, 
They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die in, of hunger. For, their pine, for these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of the compassionate woman have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and it has devoured its foundations. The kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just, they wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one could touch their garments. They cried out to him, Go away, unclean. Go away, go away. Do not touch us. When they fled and wandered, those among the nations said, They shall no longer dwell here. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priest, nor show favor to the elders. Still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching we watched for a nation that could not save us. They tracked our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were over, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was caught in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall also pass over to you. And you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that as we look at it, that it would become clear to us, that it would reveal to us Areas in our lives where we are in need of growth, where we are in need of change and maturity. We pray that we would be willing to take the hard steps to accomplish maturity and sanctification for your honor and glory. In your name we pray. Amen. The big, big idea is describe your pain, repent of sin, and trust God. It's the same type of idea that he's had numerous times already throughout the Psalms, but he really wants us to get the idea. He describes his pain, and he does so in different ways to help us see that he's described it and he's thought through it in great detail. From A to Z, every aspect of the pain is thought through. He's pictured it for us in color and helped us to see how the world was colorful and now it is in black and white. And there is extreme great pain. And so he describes his pain and he tells those who will read, he tells God about his pain. But he's also honest and he realizes the source of the pain. Why is there pain? And as he looks at the nation, he realizes that the source of the pain is their own sin. And so he's honest about that as well. And he, he goes to God and he repents of his sin. And he realizes that they have placed their faith in false objects of hope. 
And at the end, while nothing has changed, the circumstances are still the same. Jerusalem has been defeated. People are dead. They're strewn about. But yet he still chooses to trust God. He still chooses to place his faith in God, realizing that he is the only true means by which any sort of deliverance and hope can arise from the situation. Verses 1 through 10 describe the former glory and the current pain, and he does that with color. And so as we read through the passage, hopefully you picked up on some of the uses of color to describe and to help us see the extreme pain that is being pictured here. In verses 1 through 2, people are treated as if they have no value. The gold has become dim, and the precious sons of Zion, these are the people who are as valuable as gold, what's happening to these people? Now they're being strewn about as if they are pots, simple clay pots that a human made. Really not very valuable. Like we don't have many clay pots in our culture, but imagine three, 4,000 years ago. Like clay pots was everything. Lots of clay pots. Everybody had a clay pot. Everybody had multiple clay pots. They weren't valuable. And he's saying... These people who are as valuable as gold are like clay pots. They're worth nothing. He moves on, though, and he continues to describe. And he says the infants and the children are not cared for. He, he looks out at the nature and he says, nature cares for its own. And so he talks about, in verse 3, the jackals. And the jackals care for their own. They nurse them. They provide for them. They see that they grow up, that they mature. But he says, Jerusalem does not care for its own children. He compares Jerusalem to the ostrich. He says, the ostrich, it's not that the ostrich really doesn't care, but the ancients looked at the ostrich and they're like, the ostrich really hates its, its babies. Because it goes and it lays its eggs in the desert, it buries them, and then it leaves the eggs. And so the comparison is, it's like they're like ostriches. They don't care about their young. And then he describes the pain that the young are going through. The infants are unable to open their mouth. Why? Because they're so parched, because they haven't got any milk, that they're unable to open their mouths. The little children are walking around the city asking for bread, and those who have bread refuse to give it. Why? Because it's the only bread they have, and they don't want to give it to the kids. There's extreme pain in the passage. He moves on, though, and he continues to describe the extreme pain. Notice, once again, in verses 5 and 6, you have color. Extreme pain is rampant in Jerusalem. He talks about those who ate delicacies now no longer have the delicacies. Those who once wore scarlet, the robes that demonstrated their status in society, whether it be that of wealth or power and prestige, where are they now? They're in ash heaps. It's gray. The color has changed. He moves on and he continues to describe the pain that the community is experiencing. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no one to help her. He says, the pain that Jerusalem experienced is worse than what Sodom experienced. We're not quite to Sodom yet in, in Sunday nights, but pretty soon we'll be to Sodom. And you read through the story of Sodom, and it's like, how can what happened to Jerusalem be worse? And what he's saying is, 
Sodom didn't know it was coming. It just happened. And then they're all dead. What he's saying is, for a famine and the pain that's being described here to happen, it took a long time. And people had to slowly watch their family die before them. They had to make decisions that were just grueling decisions. And so he says, it would have been better if they just all been killed like Sodom. That would have been less painful for the city than what they've experienced. He moves on and he continues to use color. The plight of the wealthy is pictured gloomily. Her Nazarites were brighter than snow and whiter than, than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, like sapphire in their appearance. But what's happened to these leaders? What's happened to these noble individuals? Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. They've shriveled up so much, they look like dry wood. It's extreme pain. It's extreme sadness. And so he's trying to paint us a picture of happy times are gone. And so the painting is one that is very gloomy, one that is very sad. He moves on, though, in verse 9, he says, those who died earlier are better off. He's picking up on some of the same ideas that he introduced to us in verse 6, where Sodom was better off than Jerusalem. And then in verse 10, he says that the women who are compassionate ate their young. It's just unimaginable for us that you could be so hungry that you'd be willing to do something like that. But that's what he's describing. The pain is immense. The agony is terrible. And all this is happening not to the enemies of God. All this is happening to God's chosen people. How can God deal so harshly with his chosen people, this covenant people, the ones who he's going to use to bless all the nations? How can God do this to them? As we go through life, we sometimes feel like we are living in black and white. We sometimes feel like this as well. Maybe not to the same extent. Maybe these descriptions don't all describe the experiences that we're facing. But think back on your life. As you go through different times, you think through different times you've gone through. A loss of a job. You're not really sure how you're going to continue to provide for your family. What about disease? Illness? going to the doctor's office for a normal checkup and you walk out of the doctor's office with some strange diagnosis and they're just not even sure how they can treat you and they don't know how much time you have left to live or maybe you've experienced death in your family I don't know if you guys know Pastor Philip Kramer but Pastor Philip Kramer pastors Norwoodville Baptist Church just on January 1st, they lost their um, baby. Their baby was about um, 17 weeks old, wasn't born yet. Okay? There's extreme pain, extreme heartache. We experience these same type of things. And how do we, especially as Christians, go through these trying hard times of life? 
and choose to still live for God, choose to still honor God in these difficult circumstances. The author of Lamentations seeks to give us a step-by-step guide as to how do we continue to worship God in the midst of pain, in the midst of death, in the midst of great loss. And the first thing he points our attention to is to confess sin. He moves from there and he tells us that God is angry. And because of God's anger at their sin, that is why there is pain. Verse 11, the Lord has fulfilled his fury. His fury against who? Against his chosen people. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and it has devoured its foundations. Normally, when you think of a fire, don't know if you're like an expert. I'm not an expert. But normally, when you think of a fire, you don't think of the fire like consuming primarily the foundation, right? Normally, the way we build foundations are pretty good, even if there's a fire. But this, the fire has destroyed the foundation itself. God is very angry. Why is God angry? He moves on to describe why God is angry. Verse 12 expresses the dismay of those who are outside that God would deal so harshly with his chosen people. And then verse 12 really begins to diagnose why is this pain in Jerusalem? Why is this pain in the southern kingdom? And it's because the prophets and the priests have sinned. Because of the sins of our prophets and the iniquities of our priests. And what have they done? It says that they have shed In her midst, the blood of the just. They've killed people who are innocent. They've killed the righteous. He moves on, though, and he says, They wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. And it's just amazing. These people are supposed to be the religious leaders of the community, but they've defiled themselves so much that the community will not touch them. And what does the community have to say about them? The community says, unclean, stay away, go away, don't touch them. They cried out to them. They as the community crying out to the prophets and the priests, and what do they say? Go away, unclean. And they go on, go away, go away, do not touch us, you're unclean, we don't want you here. And so what happens? When they fled and wandered, those among the nations, what did the nations say when these unclean prophets and priests came into them? They said, they shall no longer dwell here. Moving on, we're not giving you a visa. You don't get to stay here. You got to go to the next country down the road. We don't want your kind here. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests nor show favor to the elders. Why? Because they're living in sin. And so it's pointing us to the need for us to acknowledge sin and when we see sin to be willing to confess it and to change. The response to the sinful... Uh, the response, and then pain is a result of sin. Pain is always a result of sin. It might not necessarily be your sin, right? 
Why is the pain of verses 1 through 10 happening? It's not because the people who are experiencing the pain necessarily all did the bad things. Who does he trace it to? He traces it to somebody else. Pain is always a result of sin. Maybe not your own sin. It could be the result of sin of somebody else. So when somebody drinks too much and they have an accident and kill your 18-year-old's child because they were drunk and they lived to survive and live another day, there's a lot of pain that you will experience in that day. But it's not necessarily because of your 18-year-old. It's because of the drunk who hit your 18-year-old. But pain is always a result of sin. And so he says, if pain is a result of sin, confess sin, change. Don't continue down that path. Turn around. Stop. What he's getting at is the need for us to confess our sin. To change. It's unclean. Do you have this kind of feeling toward sin? What is your response to sin? Do you pursue sin? Do you hang around people who are pursuing sin? Are you pursuing righteousness? Maybe you say, you know, I used to sin. But I don't do it anymore. That's good. But that doesn't really solve the problem of whether or not you've confessed your sin. Because if all you do is just change, the sin is, st sin is still there, and God still holds his condemnation over you because of that sin. And so it requires that you acknowledge that you are a sinner. You come before God and you say, I am a sinner, and your son, Jesus Christ, paid the penalty that I deserved. And I place my faith in his death, burial, and resurrection alone for my hope of eternal life. And then after doing that, you turn from sin. You forsake it. You leave it. You pursue righteousness. You pursue holiness. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden color comes back into your life and black and white is left behind for forever. We get to the end of the book of Lamentations and it's still black and white. There's still pain. There's still heartache. But they know how to live before God in a way that pleases and honors him. He moves on though and he acknowledges sinful objects of their faith. He points to three different objects of their faith. Things that they had hoped in, things that they looked to to say, maybe this will be able to save us from our dire circumstances. And all three of them fell flat. None of them were able to save them from the consequences that they were facing. The first one that they looked to is a foreign nation. Perhaps a foreign nation could save us. Still, our eyes failed us. What are they doing? Why are their eyes failing them? They're watching vainly for our help. Maybe Egypt will come and rescue us from this onslaught. Maybe Edom will come and save us from this onslaught. Edom doesn't come either. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. 
So he learned that the community was placing their faith in something that was wrong as well. But he moves on and he describes that they believed that they could run from their enemy. They thought that maybe they could escape in some way from their enemy. And so in verses 18 through 19, you see them talking about their attempt to do that. They tracked our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were over, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains. They lay waiting for us in the wilderness. Escape isn't a possibility either. That's a false object of faith as well. And then they move on in verse 20 and they say, well, if, if the foreign nation can't save us and we can't find some way to escape the enemy ourselves, perhaps our king, the Lord's anointed, could save us. I mean, he's after David's line. It's not like we're the northern tribe that, you know, broke off from the Davidic dynasty. We have David's offspring. The, the throne is supposed to come through David. So this is a good thing. We can place our hope in him. Verse 20, the breath of our nostrils. That's a phrase that was used to refer to kings in the ancient days. The anointed of the Lord, the, the anointed one, that is their current king, was caught in their pits. He tried to escape. But what happened to him? He got caught. His sons got killed before him, and then his eyes got plucked out, right? That's what happened to him. You can go read about it later, but it's not in Lamentations. Got to go read another book. But that's what happened to their king when their, but their king was a false object of their hope. Their king could not deliver them. Of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. We'll just take refuge right here. It's, it's kind of like the same type of picture that Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wish that you would come and that you would gather under my wings. That's the same picture. We thought that we could take refuge in our own king. We thought that he would protect us. We thought that he could care for us, that he would deliver us from this enemy. And no, foreign nations could not help. Trying to escape could not deliver them, and their own king could not deliver them. So if all those options for hope and deliverance from this black and white world that they are living in has failed, where will they turn now? And it is here that the author of Lamentations comes in and says, put your hope, put your faith, put your trust in God. God is the only one who can deliver. They believe their king could not save them. And we also harbor sinful objects of faith in our life. As you think about various areas in which we may be harboring sinful objects of faith, where do you go in the days where you're experiencing heartache? In the days when you're not convinced that the finances will stretch and make it to pay for all the bills that you know are coming in in the next 25, 26 days. Where do you go? Go to the Xbox? It's a false object of our faith. Do you turn to entertainment? Watch another season of your favorite comedy. It's a false object of your faith. 
it will not deliver. Just like Israel's king could not deliver. Pursuing things will not deliver. Where does God want us to go? He wants us to go to him in faith. He wants us to place our faith and our trust in him. And he moves on, and as he does so, he turns our attention to God. Turning to God in faith is what concludes this psalm. Ezekiel 25, 12 through 14 points to the trees of Edom. If you would go with me there really, really quickly. There's a number of um, passages that we could look at that we haven't looked at. But I think this one is a little beneficial just to kind of get you thinking about why does Edom all of a sudden come up in this passage? Because it seems kind of random. We've gone three whole chapters, and then at the end of the fourth chapter, all of a sudden, Edom is randomly thrown in, and it's kind of like, what? Why did they do that? Ezekiel, or Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 12 through 14. Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it and make it desolate from Timon. Dedan shall fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel that they may be do in Edom according to my anger and according to my fury. And they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. There's other passages that talk about it. Obadiah does as well. Obadiah chapter, or no chapters in Obadiah. Obadiah 11 through 14 talks about the same idea. But Edom was a distant relative of Israel. And instead of coming to relieve her when they were surrounded by the enemy, Edom was treacherous and helped the enemy. And so when he's turning to God in faith and trust, Jerusalem looks forward to her coming relief, but also her enemy's demise. And Edom is now counted as one of the enemies. And Edom faces God's judgment, faces God's wrath. Verses 21 through 22. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. It's hyperbole. It's irony. It's not really be happy, okay? What's coming next is not good. It's, it's kind of like a joke. It's, you who dwell in the land of us, the cup shall pass over to you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. Instead of toasting and clinking glasses, they would pass a cup, and the cup could contain different things, either a blessing or a curse. And the idea is, your turn's coming, Edom. You're going to get a cup, and it's a bad cup. It's going to bring about drunkenness and nakedness. Nakedness demonstrating the idea of shame. It's the same type of idea we've seen the nakedness of Jerusalem talked about. It demonstrates her shame. He moves on. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. I think it's probably better to read it not as send you into captivity because they're already in captivity, but rather keep you in captivity. They're no longer going to be kept there. There is relief coming from their captivity. It's not going to happen in Lamentations, but they're promised it, and they're placing their hope and their faith in this fact that God will deliver them from captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. 
God will do what is just. God will do what is right. He will deliver those who are his chosen people. He will once again care for them. Color will come back. It will not come back for this generation, though. But he will not forever forget them. And he does promise that he will punish Edom for their sin. God is good. And what the psalmist, what the author of Lamentations is doing is saying, trust God even when you don't understand. Confess, acknowledge false objects of faith, and place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, in God's care for you. None of the circumstances have changed, but they choose to place their faith in God's deliverance. And so as you go through the trial that you're experiencing, as you go through the next trial that you will experience, you will experience another trial, or you'll die. Take heart, right? One or the other will happen. You'll experience another trial, your car will break down, your house will have a leak, or you'll die. This is like two options. It's a sin-cursed world, okay? But how are you going to respond the next time you face a trial? The next time you go through pain? Will you place your faith in Christ? Will you cry out to him and ask him to deliver you and continue faithfully trusting him whether or not anything changes? Or will you be treacherous? What does Lamentations 4 call on you and I to do? It calls on us to acknowledge that pain is real. And if we're to be completely honest, as we've gone through different trying times of our life, the pain that we've gone through has robbed us of the color of life. And if we were to sit down and write out the colors that our life feels like, it would not be red, yellow, green, bright blues. It would be really dark colors. The type of colors that you don't want to paint your house if you're, you know, our family. Okay. What does he want you to do? He wants you to go to God and tell God. Be honest. God already knows. It's an object of worship to tell him what you're experiencing. To act like it doesn't exist is to tell God, I'm going through this, but I got it on my own. It's not worship. It's actually worship to go to God and to tell him about your pain. Pain is real. But he also wants us to confess our sin. And over the course of this last week, you have sinned in some way. I have sinned in some ways. Spend time today, before you come back tonight, to examine your life and to see where you have offended a holy God. And then come back and join us in partaking in the Lord's Supper. Why? Because you have a restored relationship with him. You no longer are living in fear of him because the, the warnings that are given in 1 Corinthians are very real. He moves on, though, and he tells us to acknowledge and to forsake sinful objects of our faith. As you and I have gone through pain and sorrow and heartache, we have gone to false objects of faith. 
When I was a teenager, it was a PS2. That's how old I am. Okay? There's other things too, but I also went to a PS2 far too often. As adults, though, we go to other things. Maybe we do go to a gaming system still, but we go to other things. But as you see those things that you're going to and you're placing your faith and your hope in, acknowledge them, forsake them. They're actually sin. He then moves on and he says, turn to God in faith. And even if the pain never subsides and color never returns to your life, continue placing your faith in him. Continue trusting him. Because that's what he calls us to do. And it's the way that we worship him in the midst of pain when we can't cry out and tell him all the great things that are going on in our life. We can cry out and tell him, even though all these bad things are going on in my life, I choose to remain faithful and to continue trusting you. Why? Because he's faithful. And we can trust him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. We pray that as we spend time over the next couple of hours um, examining our life and um, that you would help us to see areas of our life where we have sinned and where we have failed to live in um, honoring in an honoring way to you. We pray that as we see those areas that we would be willing to confess and to forsake our sin and to continue trusting you with the pain and the heartache that we are experiencing. In your name we pray. Amen.